0: Well, broken things are hard to repair. I would hardly call myself a woodworker, but I am a novice woodworker at the best. And even in what little experience I have, I've quickly learned this woodworking wisdom. You measure twice and you cut once. Because if you cut it too short, well, then you have another piece of wood to add to your scrap pile. Because that piece of wood, once it is cut, if it is too short, It is hard to repair, but it's not just true in woodworking. This is true in all kinds of areas in our life. If you've ever had a a bad haircut, maybe the hairdresser is a little bit scissor happy, you know, well, a bad haircut is also hard to repair because once the hair is cut, you can't add back to it. This is true in all kinds of areas of our life, and we can learn it from all kinds of stories and rhymes, be it Humpty Dumpty, the shards of Narsil, or the walls of Jerusalem. We see that broken things are hard to repair, and this is also true even in our relationships. We all know that sin separates. Sin, it ruins relationships. And so if you've ever been lied to or taken advantage of, If you've been abandoned or cheated or slandered, you know that sin is going to ruin even the best of relationships because sin, it separates. And so when we sin against someone or when someone sins against us, what is needed in that place to restore that broken relationship is reconciliation. And what is needed for reconciliation? Well, the one who has sinned needs to repent And the one who has sinned against needs to forgive the one who has repented. And yet this sounds way too clinical and easy. We know it's even more difficult than just saying, well, if they do this and you do that, then all of a sudden it's all better. Because what we also know is true is that when one sins, oftentimes another will sin against that same person. And so kids, you learn this when your parents say, hey, stop hitting your brother. You say, well, he started it. Well, the problem is, is you have now sinned on top of their sin, and regardless of who started it, now you are both partakers in sin. And so now both of you need to repent, and both of you need to forgive one another so as to be reconciled. And and even if it sounds easy on paper, it's still incredibly difficult. That's why the scriptures tell us things like this: so far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another, because even still, when two parties who are once whole are now broken, it takes both of them participating to be reconciled to one another. And so we do certainly know that sin, it separates us from one another. This is true in our human relationships, but it is all the more so true in our relationships with God. Sin, it, it separates us from God. This is the narrative arc of the entire Bible. There in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, what did it do? It, it separated them from God when they were cut out from their relationship from God and cast out and exiled from Eden. And this is true not just with Adam and Eve, but also later on when, when God makes a covenant with Israel and Israel is to be his people and God would be their God. What happens when Israel continues to sin? Well, once again, you see them cut off from God broken in the relationship, exiled yet again. And so it's also true of us, even in our own sin. We know the same is true of us. Our sin separates us from God. It breaks the relationship that we might have had otherwise. And so what is needed for us to be reconciled to God? Well, the very same things that is needed for us to be reconciled to one another. There needs to be repentance. On the on the part of the sinner, the one who has sinned against God, we need to repent, that is, turn away from our sins. And not only that, but then our repentance must be received. God himself must forgive us if we are to be reconciled to him. And while that sounds easy enough, it's a bit more complicated than we might think. Yes, he is one who forgives sins, but also we know that God, he is not one who can just look away from sin. God, when he revealed himself in Exodus 34, he said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, There it is. This is the hope that we would be reconciled to him because he is a God who forgives. And yet he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so we see the complexity of this this thing that we're looking at this morning, this need for reconciliation between God and man. And yet this is where this Christ hymn that we've been looking at is such good news. So to review where we've been so far, before we get into this ministry of reconciliation, which is our our topic this morning, let's look at the very beginning of this Christ hymn yet again. Paul, he declares that Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And so what we've been looking there at the first half is is acknowledging that Christ, he is the, the Lord of creation. For all things were created through him and for him. All things belong to him. And as such, he is to be preeminent And yet we know that because of sin, not all have seen fit to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And so what he's done is he's he's making a new creation through his church. And that's the, the latter half of this Christ hymn that we've been looking at. Picking up in verse 18, he says of Jesus once again, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Here we come to verses 19 and 20 this morning after having already gone through verse 18 over the last few weeks. And we see the grounds for which Christ is the head of the church. We see the ground by which he is able to be the firstborn from the dead and as such being preeminent. And the grounds are this in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross and so we see Jesus Christ he is yes the lord of the creation all of creation but not only that he is also the lord of the new creation and as such to those who believe in him he ought to be preeminent for he is preeminent he is the creator of all things he is the reconciler of all things and so I'll be honest this this topic Quite literally blew my mind this weekend as I was trying to, to put this together. Uh, there, there's a, a line from G.K. Chesterton that kept popping through my head. He he talks about the difference between the guy who sticks his head into heaven and the guy who tries to get heaven into his head. And if you try to get heaven into your head, he says your mind will crack. And yet I don't want to lose my mind and I don't want you to either. So what we're going to do, there's no way we could ever fully understand all the fullness of God that Paul has here in this passage. And so what I hope to do this morning is do just just a glimpse of the glory of God this morning through his word as he has revealed himself to us. And even if, if we spent a lifetime trying to understand what this means, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ well, we would need another lifetime just to scratch the surface, and even instead, I think we would still fall short of it. And so to help us go through this passage, it's, it's rather simple, on the other hand, because it is the most basic recitation of the gospel that we see here in this entire hymn. This is the good news made plain to us. So to, to help guide us, I want us to consider who, what, what. Where, when, and why is reconciliation possible? And I'm going to set these together in pairs. And so the very first one is who and what? Who and what? Who and what accomplishes this reconciliation between God and man? And the answer is this. The who being Jesus Christ and the what is that he is God. For all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. Now, as we look at this here in, in, in Colossians 1:19, hearing this language, all the fullness of God, we're probably reminded of this Colossian heresy that Tate has, has taught us about previously. Remember, this Colossian heresy, it was, it was something of a Jesus plus teaching. It's hard to know precisely what it was that they were teaching because Paul, he doesn't list it explicitly in this letter, but we get hints as to what he is confronting in the Colossian church. Look at Colossians 2, 8 and 9 see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And you'll see, you'll recognize this in verse nine, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So to, to counteract this false teaching that's happening, this empty deceit and philosophy of human tradition he reminds them of the very same thing that we're looking at this morning that Christ has the fullness of God dwelling in him and then he continues again in verses 16 and 19 and you might pick up on these plus things Jesus plus this Jesus plus this verse 16 he says therefore that no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink as to whether the as with regards to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath these things are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ so that no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism the worship of angels going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through his joints and lig- ligaments and it grows with the growth that is from God so so i've been calling it jesus plus to try to explain what the colossians were teaching you'll see they're they're saying well yeah Take Jesus, believe in him, and you will be saved. But, but if you want the fullness of God and the full experience of his salvation that he has to offer, you have to do all these other things as well. This, this worshiping of angels and, and having these ascetic practices and, and, and doing all these different festivals and Sabbaths. And so Jesus Plus, I have this because it seems to be the popular marketing of, of the day where companies just put plus at the end of their name, right? You know it, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, ESPN plus this week I even saw crossway our, our favorite bible publishing company at least mine they they added crossway plus Plus. and this plus at the end of the name implies that there is something that was lacking before when it was just Disney or just ESPN or just crossway and so if we want full access to all that this company has to offer then you need Disney plus Plus. And so in a similar way, we might understand the Colossians, they were not teaching anything less than Jesus, but what they were teaching was Jesus plus, that sure, you receive Jesus all good and fine, but if you want the fullness access to him, well, then you need all these other things as well. So observe these festivals, worship these spirits, abstain by all these things, and then, and only then might you have that full access to God. What they were teaching is that Jesus himself was not sufficient for all things. And lest we think that this is just an old problem, we have a similar problem of this this heresy even in our own midst because we think we lack this fullness. You know the saying, we want to live life to the full. And so because we all want to live life to the full and have this fullness of life, We hear things like, you only live once. We're victims of this consumer mentality where we will pick and choose different things to see what the best deal is for us. And we will take advice from every self-help guru we can find because we want the fullness of life. And these kinds of teachings imply that those who are in Christ lack something when in fact, if you have Christ, You lack nothing. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is this fullness in Christ that only he can claim. And there is nothing that can be added to him. No Jesus plus necessary in order for him to be full for Jesus Christ is God. And this is a claim of his deity that is clear. And this is, it is this, all the fullness that was, was mind-boggling for me as I was trying to just wrap my mind around this wonderful, simple, small, and yet magnificent claim. And so for us to, to just Scratch the surface yet again, and not even to do so fully, but to just begin to understand what this fullness is. I want us to walk through the I am statements of Jesus found in John so we might understand rightly what it means for the fullness of God to dwell in Christ. If you don't know what this I am statement is, it's helpful to be introduced to it through, through John 8. Jesus talking to the Jews said this, And your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it, and he was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's the sentence right here Before Abraham was, I am, that the Jews took such great offense at. You see, What's what, what obvious is Abraham was, and now he's no longer, because like all created beings, he is there one day and dead the next. And yet, in distinction to him, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus is making this claim that he is not created. He, unlike Abraham, has no beginning, and he has no end. But if it wasn't clear enough what Jesus was teaching the Jews, they they knew what Jesus was claiming because God, when he revealed himself to Moses, said this. All the way back in Exodus chapter 3, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, make no mistake, Jesus was claiming to be God. And this is not a claim that is not true for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And so throughout the rest of John, you see all these I am statements showing up. There's seven of them. And in each of them, we understand this is an attribute of God's deity that is being ascribed to Jesus. And so in John 6, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so what we ought to understand is God is the, Jesus is the God who who provides just as God provided manna for Israel in the wilderness, so too Jesus Christ is the one who gives everything to his children to give them eternal satisfaction. And this is not just physical bread, but it is his body. And in John eight twelve, once again, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And so understand, once again, Jesus, as being fully God, is the light by which all people might find life. John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We see here Jesus is the, the shepherd who Israel needed, the shepherd who we all need who is able to to lead us and guide us, but not only for our benefit, but even at his own sacrifice, giving up his life so that we might live. And this is true for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Once again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so we see that Jesus as being fully God is able to not only provide as we saw earlier, but he's also able to protect For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so we see here in Christ himself is the very source of life. For God himself is the author of life. And so Jesus too is the resurrection and the life that even death itself does not have the final word because Jesus is the fullness of God. And the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And again, in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you wish to find wisdom for how to obtain life, then you will not have wisdom apart from Christ, for Jesus Christ is God. And in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the last one in John 15:5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so yet one more time we see that Jesus himself is the very source of life for every branch that is connected to him. And any any good fruit that is produced in the life of any person comes from Christ because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I don't know if you know why I'm overwhelmed, by this wonderful truth, and yet it is so much. What we see here is is simply this, because all the fullness dwells in Christ, if we have Christ, we lack nothing. Paul put it this way in, in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, James 1:17, for every good gift and every perfect gift it is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We can go on and on and on, but I think it's, it's clear from this point. If you, if you feel you lack anything, it's either owing to the fact that you lack Christ or it's owing to the fact that you do not know that Christ has the fullness of God in him. If you want protection, go to Christ. If you want provision, go to Christ. If you want life, go to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And at this point, we have yet to even touch how this relates to reconciliation. So we need to continue and consider where and when this reconciliation happens. And the where and when is simply this. It happens in Jesus' body, for all time, through His body, for all time, because God dwells in Jesus' body. This is what we see in Colossians 1:19, "For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." And when I say where, and I say in his body, and you don't see the body of Christ being demonstrated here, well, I get help from Colossians 2, 9, where it says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so what I have in mind here is, is Jesus in his incarnation, that the word became flesh. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us that God, the creator of all things, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on this human form. And this was necessary if we were to be reconciled to God, because if he were not incarnate, who then could stand in the midst of God who is an all-consuming fire, who is holy, 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 who we have sinned against, who rightly deserve death, It is necessary for him to have come down in in flesh because it was through his body that we actually have access to this fullness of God. And if we think, well, he's not here and he's not, and we was limited in access somehow and and I don't get to see him. Well, consider even the the closest relation to God that Israel would have enjoyed in the Old Testament. This, This language of, of this dwelling and this being filled with, his language actually comes out of of the Old Testament that describes God's presence being in the tabernacle or in the temple. You'll hear it in in Exodus 40, when when the tabernacle was finished and and Moses approached it, it says, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So notice, notice, even Moses is unable to enter in and see the glory of God lest he die. Similarly in 2 Chronicles, when the, when the temple was built, and so the priests, they could not stand to minister because the cloud and the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So what you should recognize here is even in the Old Testament, there was a very limited access to God's presence, to his fullness. If you were even a, a priest or a Moses in this, this case, even you had limited access, and only one day a year could you enter into the Holy of Holies. But for the rest of the Jews, you couldn't, you couldn't come close to the Holy of Holies. And if you were a gentle like I'm sure most of us are, well, then you would even have further limited access to the presence of God. And for good reason, for sinners cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and expect to live. Speaking of limited access, though, even the high priest who did enter into the Holy Holies just even that one time a year, his accents, access excuse me was even more limited than we might think. Listen to the language in 1 Kings. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Notice that language, dwell. Behold, heavens and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less than this house that I have built understand what that means? It means a temple does not contain the fullness of God. God himself declares it in Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is this place for my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord And so even the temple itself is is only but the, the footstool of God. And the fullness of God could not be contained by any building made by man. So understand then the necessity of Christ's incarnation if we ever wish to have reconciliation with God. It was necessary because apart from him, nothing in all creation could contain the fullness of God's glory. And so it should come as no surprise to us when John writes of the incarnation. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So it is, Jesus, it was necessary that he would become in the form of a man so that we could be reconciled to God for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this here is all in Christ's body. That's why Jesus was able to say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And what he was talking about was not a building, but his own flesh. This is why even in John 3, when talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus says, you no longer have to worship on this mountain or that mountain as if any mountain could contain the presence of God. But now you worship in spirit and in truth. Because God's presence is no longer limited by the access of the tabernacle or the temple, but now it is access to all those who believe in Christ. So that's the where in his body and the when, well, I take this word dwells, and in this word dwells, we can understand this is a permanent residence that Jesus, that God has taken up in Christ's body. This is not a, a vacation home for the week. This is not like the tabernacle where the presence of God would fill it and then leave it and then fill it again every time it was moved. But instead, this is, this is his dwelling place. This is where God has chosen to fill his presence with, is in the body of Christ. And so so if you're wondering, well, then when and how do I access this presence of God? It is here and now. For all who believe in Jesus have access to him in the same way that the dying criminal on the cross looked to Jesus and said, surely this is the Son of God. And so, too, anyone who believes in Jesus today, just as well, has access to Jesus. And the same that was true for that criminal is true for us. If we believe on him, then we will be with him in paradise. So this is who, this is what, this is where, this is when. And then it comes to why and how is this reconciliation possible? And this is possible because it pleased God to reconcile all creation through Christ's Blood. Colossians 1, 19 20. This is how how Paul writes it. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we see, if you're wondering, why, why would God do this? Well, it says right here, quite simply, it, it pleased God to fill Christ. There's oftentimes this thing we do where we try to make Jesus Christ and the Father as if they're kind of at odds with each other. The Son who loves the Father, he's all angry, full of wrath. And yet, right here, we see, no, this was, this was something that the Father was pleased to do to pour himself and fill himself, all of himself, into Christ. Look at John three sixteen. It says it, and you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if you think there's some divide between the Father and the Son, know that it was actually the Father's plan who, in his love for the world, sent his Son so that we might live. This is why, once again, looking at Ephesians 1 and 3 and 4, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So sending the Son was the Father's plan. And it was a plan that he was pleased to make, and it was a plan that he was pleased to see his Son execute. That's why in Matthew 3, it says... And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus, he is not this rogue son from the father who's, who's doing something that the father did not already will, but he is doing the very will of the father in coming in human flesh. And as the seal of the Father's approval, the fullness of God dwelt in Christ because it was the Father's plan. The Father willed it, and it was his good pleasure to do so. And why was it his good pleasure? Well, remember this whole Christ hymn. It all belongs together, and there's this repeated refrain over and over again. You see all, 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 all throughout this whole thing. And so go back to the top of this Christ hymn. It says that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things belong to Jesus. All things. And so understand why it was the will of the Father to send the Son to reconcile you and me because we belong to him. All things belong to him. And so make no mistake when it says that the father was pleased to dwell in him and then picking up in verse 20, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now we need to to get this right lest we fall into a a heresy of universalism, thinking that all things, all people, all demons will all be reconciled to God because that is not what Paul is saying here. Josh, it says all things. And yet we should interpret the Bible with the Bible. And we know what the Bible teaches clearly elsewhere. It says that rebel spirits will not be saved. But instead, even when Jesus himself came to the demons, it recounts it this way in Matthew 8. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, this is the demons. They cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is hardly the picture of reconciliation and peace. And again, know what this torment is. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So if you want to try to include all things, you want to say, well, the devil must be included in that. We see clearly that is not the case. And it's not just the the devil and his demons, but the same goes for those who are wicked, sinful, unrepentant, who have no faith in Christ. Galatians 5 puts it this way. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you want to think this is some kind of universal theology where all people will be reconciled to God, know this, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. Jesus himself put it this way. In Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So if all things won't be reconciled by which i mean the demons and those who are wicked then why does it say all things well understand what paul is saying he qualifies what he means by all things and the, the few words that come after it colossians 1 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven understand there's something exclusive by which he's saying here this Earth and in heaven, he's, remember, he's making a new creation. And you know what that new creation is gonna look like because John tells us, Revelation 21, then I saw the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And so it seems to me what Paul's doing here is he's referring not to just this created world here and now, not simply that, but he's, he's looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth where all things will be reconciled to him, where there will no longer be conflict between man and God. There will no longer be sin. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be pain. But instead, there will be everlasting peace. For there, God and man will be reconciled face to face once again. But some might be saying, well, well, Josh, it says all things. Come on, how could you reinterpret all things? Doesn't all things mean all things? Well, it might help to see Philippians 2 because you see something similar written here that is happening in Colossians. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And listen to the third one, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And so when it says all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled to God, I take that to mean this is those by whom he is redeeming through his blood. Those who believe in him. But for those who do not believe in this life, you can expect judgment and torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. And know this, that in the end, though you may not believe in Jesus now and you might not confess him as Lord, what we do see is very clear here in Philippians is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess both in heaven and on earth and yes, even those under the earth. So what does this mean, this, this picture of Colossians one twenty, where it talks about all these things being reconciled in heaven and on earth? Well, I take it to mean that this new creation will be perfect. Not a single atom will be outside of his domain and control. Not a single person, not a single angel will think to rebel against Christ. You know, as a youth pastor, I get students who sometimes talk to me and say, you know, heaven sounds pretty boring. I think they have pictured in their mind floating in clouds. And I think being on an airplane is boring. And so if that's what you think of heaven being like as being stuck in the clouds, well, I would agree with you. That would be pretty boring. And yet the scriptures, they do not describe heaven that way. In fact, it talks about, again, like we've said, the new heavens and the new earth. It is this place that is perfect. We call things here on earth paradise, not because it is paradise, but because we compare it to that which is perfect, the paradise which Christ invites his people into. Perhaps it's because I'm just a week off of uh, my vacation that I think of this, but uh, I did go to Disneyland a week ago, and I could tell you that Disneyland, it is not paradise, Though it is the happiest place on earth. I tell you what, earth is not happy. Because even there, my kids cried every single day. And not only that, but even I wanted to cry because I had blisters on both my feet after day one. And even my wife and I were sternly rebuked by a park employee. They were just doing their job. But I could tell you what, I was not feeling like this was the happiest place on earth. And yet what we see in this new creation where there is perfect peace and perfect reconciliation, oh, it will be paradise. For Christ will rule and he will reign and it will be good. That's who, that's what, that's where, that's when, that's why and how. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, here it is. How is this possible? It's possible because he made peace by the blood of his cross. So it becomes crystal clear. He does not turn a blind eye towards sin, our God. No, he is just, but he is also the justifier. He is the one who paid the price that we could never afford. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, he was able to make reconciliation by pouring out all of his blood for you and for me so that we might have peace with God. So I am thankful for the work of Christ for through him, I and you who believe are reconciled to God. So if you have Christ, know this, you lack no good thing. For in him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Let's pray.